This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that remains on hold. Yes, just like interest rates, that's an interest rate pun. Great way to start the podcast. I'm Scott Phillips, with me as always, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. G'day mate, how are you? Very good, Matt. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, particularly well, depends what you like about interest rates. The rates are on hold this year. The Melbourne Cup was this week, is what I should say. Melbourne Cup was this week. It was all happening. I think it, to some degree that kind of got lost, right, amongst the Melbourne Cup hype, although I guess when nothing happens, nothing happens. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the Big Bank's Anis Haribolis taking a lead from the Queen. It's been a terrible year for the big three, at least, three that have reported in the last little while. We'll talk about that. We'll cover predictions of doom from one of the most well-regarded names in the business. I have to say, I don't generally avoid these kind of, it's one of those who cares things, but this guy's got some, frankly, track record and a lot of people listening to him. So we'll talk about that. Plus, speaking of doom, or at least speaking of, of a tough couple of weeks, the tech stocks, the Australian ASX tech companies, haven't exactly been setting the world on fire recently, mate. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> and we'll talk about <laughs> airlines cutting costs. And as always, you know it, we'll dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. Mate, let's get started. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. This week, the big macro. We'll start with Tuesday, the race that stops a nation, the rate that stops a nation. Do you like that? Oh, I love that Get pun. It, the rate, race, race, rate, rate. race. I'm basically on hold <laughs> while you're doing puns. Well, we d- yeah, fair. We- <laughs> I'd be selling those. I wouldn't be holding those. Uh, we-, we didn't tip a winner in the cup, unfortunately. Did you back a winner? No, I landed up paying a lot of gold coins <laughs> to other people who got who got the winner. That's right. The, the Motley Fool <laughs> Office Sweep, we have a, a an internal rewards program that we kind of can uh, recognize others who, who do some cool stuff. Uh, it cost us a lot of gold this month because uh, we had to had to give some of that away. Um, mate, that being said, let's get back to the – well, <laughs> I should say as well, both ScoMo and Albo, the uh, Prime Minister and Opposition Leader, managed to pick the winner. I don't know what that says about where we are in the world right now. Is it rigged? Oh, I like that. Maybe. Maybe. Do you reckon? It could be. I mean, how Scamo could... and Alba rigging the Melbourne Cup. That's a yeah. story, dude. That's a story. Maybe. You don't hear that sort of stuff on other podcasts? It's a speculation. Oh, no. It's a, I think it's a good story. I think, I think this will be reported as Dr. Nirban Mahanti says Melbourne Cup was rigged by the Labour and Liberal Party. That's a uh, fantastic point. How could two people who are <laughs> the top of the pyramid... They're powerful people, mate. Powerful people. Who knows how these things work? Behind exactly. the scenes. I have never picked a winner. I, I picked one about four years ago, I think. It wasn't... Oh, yeah, I'm not, I haven't got a very good track record. No, I think, don't think anyone does in the Melbourne Cup, do they? I have no idea. It's one of those things, kind of, we all... They, they reckon the punters, the real punters, actually stay away from the Melbourne Cup because <laughs> there's so much dumb money that screws with the odds. They, they literally go like, you know, it's just too hard. We'll, come, we'll have a day off and come back in the, when the real races are on, which is, which is which is saying something, right? It's like whenever the professionals walk away, you know, you know it's the old Buffett line of... Um, when you don't know, when you're sitting at a poker table, you don't know who the patsy is, you're the patsy. Mm. I think at Melbourne Cup, they wear the patsies. Did you put a bet on? No. No. Okay. I, I don't do betting. I often, I often do. I just, I literally lost track of time. I got to a point where I was trying to put a bet on. I, um, I managed to be out of mobile signal where, where I was trying to put the bet on. Luckily, because I wouldn't have won anyway. So I feel good about well, that. Well, you saved some money. I did. I did. Mate, let's get, let's get away from the race because it's, uh, it's been run and won. Interest rates on hold. No super surprise. Probably not even really any new news, although there was some sense that the RBS little more dovish, to use the term. They seem a little bit less likely to cut rates, certainly this year, maybe not into next year if they do at all. Um, when the market had to some degree, at least some people have been predicting a 
cut sooner rather than later. The RBA seems happy that house prices are back on the rise. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and also that maybe there's just less uncertainty, less concern around the economy. Share that view? Yeah, like, I mean, uh, I'm of the view that they shouldn't have cut in the first place. So um, I thought the two cuts back to back were a mistake. Right. Um, I still think they're a mistake. Uh, I mean, you know, like, I mean, uh, what is RBA really trying to do? RBA is trying to make people feel wealthy by pushing the house prices up. Therefore, you know, the idea is that, well, you push the house prices up, people will spend. I mean, right. I know there's, a, there's an extent to which that's true and there's an extent to which it's not true in the sense that, well, if you cut interest rates, then people feel that, well, the economy is maybe not doing mm, that well. People right. pull back. So there's there's that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the um, the bottom line here really is that, I mean, I think each cut going forward has incremental less benefit. Yeah. Right? Uh, the banks, you know, my, my bank actually has passed me 0. 0.10 of the last rate cut, okay. right? And going forward, I think, you know, I think 0. 0.05 is the next one I'm getting. Um, so, uh, so I think it, it, the banks make less money. They give you less uh, of the cut. And, and as a result, you know, you have less. Effectively, you have a little bit more in your pocket, but not really a lot more. Right. Uh, but I think I think you feel crappy, a little bit crappy about it as overall. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think the, in, the cut going forward is incrementally less meaningful um, in, in that sense. Maybe there's no point of uh, cutting forward. Uh, that, that might be mm. uh, at work here. I mean, uh, the, the thing is that inflation is not in the target band, right? I mean, inflation has been undershooting for what, like 18 months. Right. But may, you know, maybe the inflation target band needs adjusting. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's, i got to say, that's exactly my view. I think, like, I, I'm, I'm wary of new normals, right? Because stagflation in the 80s was a new normal, then high inflation was a new normal, and then, you know, kind of, Pro, you know, uh, prosperity that was never going to come to an end was the new normal. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's silly. To, it's silly to, at any point, I think, believe that there's any sort of new normal. That being said, it, it just seems there are so many impacts on the world economy, and in particular, I think you've said before, and I agree with you, that tech is a huge one, and just the general wage arbitrage around the world. There is simply more opportunities to make manufactured goods from lower wage countries, and not just China. We always say China, but there's China, Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, parts of Africa. I mean, the reality is that we are we have been for years. China has been exporting deflation, as they say. We've been importing deflation. You know, the, the, the price of the computer, the phone, the car, the TV, the whatever keeps coming down. Um, I, I agree with you. I think, I think inflation of kind of 1-ish percent, 1.5% feels like it probably should be the new normal. Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, 1.7, 1.8% about seems right trying to get this 2%. I mean, the, you get this 2% via artificial uh, inflation of asset prices. Actually, right. you know, it's, I mean, those have its own side effects, right? I mean, you push up some certain asset prices, you, which basically means some people feel wealthy, but some people are actually being cut out <laughs> yeah. of those assets. Right. Um, ultimately, I mean, the other thing is that you can't really, I mean, you can get some productivity gains, but you, you know, by trying to get people to borrow more, which is not being invested in productive assets, doesn't really help productivity, right? right? right. It, it helps in creating more debt, which eventually people have to pay, which if people have to pay and, and there's not enough productive improvement basically means that, well, the interest rate has to stay low. Mm. Um, you know, so, so yeah, see, in a low interest rate environment, maybe inflation should be around 1.5 to 2%, maybe not 2 to 3%. Mm. I think that's right. I think it, you say in a low interest rate environment, I think that that's the reality is that neither are 
independent variables, right? Interest rates and inflation, by definition, go together. Yeah, um, I've said I've said many times. I think people would prefer, um, high, you know, wage rises that were three percent in a four percent inflation world than a one percent wage rise in a zero percent inflation world. Even though the former is a negative and the po- the latter yeah. is a positive, just larger numbers feel better, and there's just some reality to that. I do think, for what it's worth, if we could get two percent inflation, we probably could, should, and would, because there is some sense that if we have been a deflationary spiral, that gets really ugly really fast. So we need some positive price movement just to keep the economy as it exists moving. Um, not to say that's the only option for an economy, but it'd be a really, really painful readjustment if everything started to fall price-wise. So the RBA and federal banks, or Federal Reserve, the central banks around the world, are right to want to see some inflation just to keep the economic engine moving forward. But I think, you know, to some degree we are, as you've rightly pointed out, making some potentially uh, questionable uh, make some questionable uh, decisions to try and get us to a point that maybe isn't reasonably capably delivered without being irresponsible I, I think one decision that I'm going to you know give credit because I, I you know I I, I, I raise I raise the voice and say well you know I, I don't agree with that and don't agree with this but I think one thing that I thought was positive was the government actually decided against asking the RBA to explain why they're not making the mandate of the thing. Now, there okay, might be political agree. reasons behind that as to, you know, because the, because the RBA governor could write back and say, well, you know, I couldn't do this because you didn't do that. That's right. Uh, so, so, poked the bear. Yeah. so so maybe it's not, not entirely a policy decision, <laughs> but it's more of a, um, uh, you know, political decision. A bit that, of real politics, uh, yeah, as they say. Yeah. yeah, but irrespective of that, whatever is the reason, I think that's the right thing to do is to not, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, not put the gun on uh, the RPA <laughs> governor's head and say, okay, you got to explain to me why you can't hit the target yeah. uh, because there's a whole heap of reasons as we discussed. So anyways, that, that I thought was a positive. Yeah, let's move off macro, mate. But I will say before we finish, I've said this before, I'll say it again as many times as I, as I need to without boring people. I do think that the government, this is a policy, not a political statement. The government, if, if the RBA feels that they need so desperately to cut rates, they are flagging that the economy is weaker than than average or should be expected and needs extra support. The fact that governments across the board, in this case it happens to be a coalition government, but it would be the same if it was a Labor government, if the RBA is right, then it seems incontrovertible that the pollies are not doing enough to help Glenn Stevens, oh, Glenn Stevens, how am I going? Phil Lowe in that process, right? Like either, either, either Lowe is wrong or the government's wrong right now because if there is effectively drastic measures, I think we can call them that with rates at you know such low levels, for the government to be sitting back going, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get around to it. Does seem to me to be a little bit at odds with what the RBA is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, the government is actually odds at one thing, right? I mean, while household debts are really high, the government is in you know trying to have a positive balance sheet, right? I mean, right, in right. a way, in in a low interest rate environment, it's it's a kind of the opposite of what I would think. That you know, if you <laughs> yeah. if if you um, yeah, if the interest rates are low, then you know you might actually want to borrow. Maybe this is the time to borrow for a hundred years, right? Oh, mate! Yeah, don't, don't some, get on my yeah. yeah I, so I, some yeah. ridiculously low rate. You could you, yeah. you you could you could happily take out even a thirty year loan at, at a couple of percent. I mean, yeah. if governments can't find something to do with with X billion dollars at two percent, I mean, you know, any if this was if this was Australia Inc. and you and I ran this country as a company, yeah. We would be we'd be there getting as much money as we possibly yeah, could, absolutely. stuffing the coffers with cash and going and investing it wisely. Because yeah. what, what can't you do if you borrow at two percent? You've got to be completely incompetent to not do. And, and governments are governments, so some people will listen and say, "Yeah, exactly." But you know, you've got to be pretty ordinary to not be able to do something positive if you borrow at two percent. 
Yeah, exactly. But but I think this is this is where I think all the governments I think try tend to move in uh, unison, right? So I've heard yeah. that the Federal Reserve is actually looking at borrowing over like a 50 year or something like that ridiculous period so i think you need someone to do it somebody has to go first and once somebody goes first i think the other people will go right. um so, so it's yeah uh, anyways, i think it's interesting exactly mate let's move on value stocks market stock market index share market this is motley fool money subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m all right I'm going to invoke Queen Elizabeth II, Her Majesty. The big banks have had what she called, and what I think we should call for the banks this year at least, an Annus Horribilis, or Horribilis, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I might, my Latin isn't great, mate. I don't know about yours, but uh, I'll, I'll assume Horribilis and then we can go from there. In other words, it was a ter- terrible year. Horrible year is the way that, that translates. And not surprisingly, because we saw over the last eight or nine days, three of the big four banks, ANZ, Westpac, and NAB in order, come out and basically deliver what can only be described as awful results to the market. Now, I say awful, you know, I mean, I guess you could have profits fall by 30 or 40%, so I guess it could always be worse. But when you think about the size of these banks and the size of their loan books, their their, their profit, literally in just sheer dollar terms, um, each of them, I think, I want to say, falling more than 10% profit-wise. Um, NAB out only, we recorded this on, on Thursday, the 7th, we normally record this on a Friday, on Thursday the 7th, and, and NAB came out this morning, revenues were down 4%, cash profit was down 10.5%, the dividends being cut, I think, 16%, matching the cut in Westpac's dividend more recently. ANZ didn't cut the dividend, so there was some joy there, at least some lack of pain for ANZ, except that, well, it wasn't quite that easy. They cut their franking percentage. I, I think I know, I think our listeners know your thoughts, but what is going on in banking land? Well, uh, I think it's, you know, it's playing exactly as one would think it should play, right? I mean, um, we're in a difficult, difficult environment in the sense that, you know, it's hard for the loan books to keep growing at a fast rate, right? I mean, that's number one. And let's just let's just actually—I mean, that's a—you present that as a, as, a, as a matter of fact, and I agree with you. But why is that? What, what's the rationale for our listeners? What's well, the rationale behind why well, loan books can't get growing at a decent rate? Well, I mean, how the loan books are going to be growing as a function of you know population growth, and maybe right. you know population growth is just a function of you know how many new people are born, but how many new people are actually wanting to, you know, have new investments and new houses and things like that, and how many people are coming from foreign countries, right? right. Those two numbers basically are, you know, basically which is immigration, right? Mm. So immigration plus net addition mm-hmm. overall is roughly fixed. Yep. And I think the other thing to think about is if the net addition was at a pretty steady rate, um, in percentage terms, you know, it the if the the amount coming in or being added is a fixed amount, then over mm. a larger and larger base, it becomes a smaller and smaller percentage in that sense, right? Uh, I mean, to some extent, I mean, unless you have drastic changes to population, mm. you wouldn't expect very rapid growth, yep. right? That's one. Um, then uh, I think, you know, some of the growth in the past probably came from consolidation, right? So mm-hmm. banks consolidate and if, if they consolidate, then, well, you know, they've got growth that comes by and you have some arbitrage. And a bit of cost cutting. And, and yeah, cost exactly. cutting, some arbitrage, some synergies, yep. and, and then, then you get the growth. But now I think we're at the stage where that too has sort of, you know, we've got like four banks and, mm. the, you know, the big banks own, like, I mean, if you're Westpac, you own St. George, for example, right? Right. Bank SI, Bank of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, own some of the all these smaller banks. So um, I think that's where the problem is. So, I mean, the growth has in a way normalized mm. to what I would expect the growth would be mm. for large banks. Yeah. 
which is what we are seeing well, in this case. I'll bite in because I think there's a couple other trends that we're seeing the end of, right? And so if you think about, you know, there's plenty of people listening here or maybe some who have owned banks for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? And it's been a really, really profitable ride. I think if you think about the last, again, three, three and a half decades, we've seen absolutely consolidation, as you mentioned, Doc. We've seen population growth, absolutely true. We've also seen a higher workforce participation which means that there's higher income per household. Every, every time someone, the second partner you know, in a household joins the workforce, that's been a benefit. And of course, as we've just talked about, rates have been coming down and down and down, which is not necessarily increasing the number of houses, but it's increased the price of the average house. And so what does that do? Well, if you're a bank and you, borrow, you, you lent to someone five years ago for a $500,000 house, well, the same loan today is probably going to be written for eight hundred, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars, and so you get that benefit of all of those trends really, really nicely flowing into you know, higher house prices, lower lower rates, longer loan terms as well. By the way, which increase the amount people could borrow. There's been a huge number of tailwinds that I was going to say have stopped dead, and I was going to stop myself, but I still think that's actually right. So I will say it have effectively stopped dead. I mean, you can't add a third income to a household, at least not easily. Rates can't go all that much lower, at least not sustainably. I mean, there was some talk that banks were going to increase their bloody loan length, which I think is a debacle. And I think I probably ranted about that recently. Um, as you say, there are only so many they can consolidate. I mean, all of those tailwinds, which have been fantastic, by the way, and bank shells have done really, really well. But they're kind of, I mean, they stopped dead. They, they are, if anything, they're going to be headwinds rather than tailwinds. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's that's that, that's absolutely right, right? And, and I think the other aspect is we've sort of, you know, and this goes into like property prices, but if you, if you have sort of, you know, when the property prices are rising, that's great. Mm. But then if they become too high, it creates a situation where you don't have enough people entering the system because they can't find a deposit, right? right exactly. That that acts as a lever. Then I think there's another thing that has happened, and that's that's reflects in the recent results, which is tightening of, um, uh, you know, borrowing Right, lending standards, of course, yeah. Right. So, so the uh, the Hain um, Commission, basically, Royal Commission, basically resulted in, and, and ARPA and all these mm-hmm. other, you know, the regulatory bodies basically have required the banks to strengthen their lending criteria. Right. And, and that results in, in, in interest, results in interesting dynamics, right? So all of a sudden, if you have a page, it becomes better for you to mm. find a loan because you have a page that, you know, the bank can say, oh, I've got the page. Right, right, but right. we have a large workforce, which is, you know, a sole trader. <laughs> so if you're an Uber driver or a chippy or a doctor or something else, you, you're going to struggle to get a loan in a way you probably weren't. A yeah, year like, or two ago. you know, if you have a Sparky or you're a doctor or whoever, right? Mm. I mean, whoever has a lumpy income stream because they have a business and they earn from the business, right? Right, right. Those people are going to now all of a sudden find it difficult to actually prove income, and and that results. And so you've taken out one stream in mm. a way. Effectively, it becomes harder for that stream to get loans. Right, right. So, so I think all of those um, are, I think, playing. I mean, I mean, overall, I think, as you said, I think there's, there's just growing headwind. And, and some of the regulation is, is probably okay. I mean, in, in the past, probably the regulation was lax. lax. Now we have probably gone from mm. lax to too <laughs> yes. strong, yes, right? That's and right. maybe at some point, we're going to come back and, you know, find the right equilibrium. Yeah. But till then, that headwind remains. I, I think that's right. Mate, just on that one, I think that they're all really valid points. If there is, and we've been a little bit negative about banks, if there is a positive, it's the fact that house prices have again started to grow. Now, now there's there's different economic questions, and we've already mentioned that when we had a rate discussion. But you know, is it possible this is the nadir of the bank's kind of earnings cycle? And maybe if, if prices do continue to grow, or at least even frankly stabilize, that kind of you know eighteen month, twenty four month, uh, you know, kind of um, momentum of, of falling prices. If that if that stops and maybe turns around and becomes rising prices again, is this as bad as it gets for the banks? 
I don't know. To me, this whole situation looks like, as I call it, it's like the dead cat bounce. <laughs> L- largely because I think there's a couple of, there's a fundamental problem. I think the fundamental problem is really household debts are too high. Right. And, and to pay off that household debt, it's going to take time. Mm. So in that environment, I think the, uh, you know, I don't think you can expect substantial house price increase, right? Now, yeah, so I think mm. I, I think this headwind actually is going to, this is a long-term headwind in my opinion. It's going mm. to be, uh, to me, this looks like, you know, we're headed towards a new normal instead of an improvement. That's that's what I think. Okay. New normal as in a new plateau or? Well, it's hard to, like, I mean, you know, is, I don't think we have seen the bottom mm. of uh, bank profit growth. I mean, here's the other okay. thing, right? The, and the, re, the the rationale here be that our banks have traditionally been hugely more profitable than many global peers, yeah. right? So, if, lack of competition will do that for you, mate. Yeah, <laughs> like, 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 yeah. But but I think the new the headwinds all put together, right? Um, with the fact that we have got one of the highest household debts in the developed world, mm. I think that puts a serious break on on the potential for the banks to actually continue to ring um, above you know average profits mm. right um, so I would think that that normalization is going to take still take some time and I don't think you know I'm not calling for a crash of the banks or anything but I think mm. there is a, a pretty longish road to normalization on that bright note let's move on let's move on motley fool money Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Actually, mate, I kind of uh, misspoke. I said we're going to move on from that bright note. But now I'm going to talk about some predictions of doom that have been in the market just recently. I thought you were so the positive got... person. I'm the oh, doom mate, person I, well, here. I've got to tell you, if I look down the list of stuff we're going to talk about today, I'm going to, I'm going to try and think. Well, <laughs> what we're doing this podcast, I'm going to try and think of something positive to win with, mate, because frankly, I... You know, I have something positive to say about okay. the tech stocks. So I'll, well, I'll definitely make that go. positive. So don't, don't stop listening just yet. Yeah. Wait around for docs, positivity on tech. Um, mate, Ray Dalio, he is the chief investment officer, the ex-CEO of Bridgewater Associates. It is the largest... I want to say, actively managed fund in the world. Uh, Dalio is very, very, very well regarded for his process. He's made a couple of predictions that he was right about. Um, he's He's been, to some degree, he doesn't get the same profile as Buffett, but he's kind of almost that elder statesman role, right? You think about some of the people who are listened to in the, in the economic markets right now, who've been around for a while, seen and done most of it. Dalio's kind of in that camp. Um, I, he's, he's relatively... Um, his, his approach is relatively formulaic. As an investor, I don't necessarily love it, but then again, he's got good results, so maybe that's my fault, not his. That being said, mate, he's been pretty negative about, in particular, some of the new IPOs that have come out of VCs, but just generally about what's going on in the market. Um, I mean, again, when, when there's no shortage. Every, every day there's a new, new prediction of doom and gloom. But when Dalio comes out with what is frankly a pretty negative approach to what's actually going on, are we right to listen and maybe be a little more cautious or is it another old guy with, with another prediction of doom that maybe we've proven wrong in time? Um, I'm going to be not going to be bold to say that Dalio <laughs> is another old guy. I'm, I'm going to actually take Dalio, uh, Ray Dalio seriously. Um, that said, I mean, I'll, 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 let's just throw a couple of things. You know, you know somebody, anybody can make predictions. Like yeah. I'll make the house, I, I just made house price predictions. <laughs> I'll exactly. eventually be right. Yep. Uh, well, hopefully, maybe. Uh, right. And then, you know, you make a couple of predictions and you're right. Mm. Doesn't mean 
anything really. Right, right, right. Scientifically, it means nothing. Yeah. Um, that's number one. Number two is I think he's right to a certain degree, but I think mm. he's also wrong at the same time. Um, See, so he's right that there's a lot of um, hot money right. in the venture world. And in a way, like a good example would be WeWork, right? That's mm. like a pyramid mm. in some sense. You know, I pay one billion valuation or oh, next round is a two billion valuation or oh, next <laughs> round. I'm missing out. It's a three billion valuation. Oh, right, the soon right, it's right. like a 20 billion valuation. Right. When they tried to float the thing. Which, on, which to be fair is actually the way all VC investments work over time. And often they're justified. Facebook was, was listed, you know, had ever, ever higher valuations with each new funding round listed on the markets went yeah. well. So that, that in itself isn't problematic. But I think the question you're probably, or the point you're probably going to make in the minute is that, um, that that's fine as long as the business is fundamentally sound. Yeah. So, so the, the question is like, I mean, you know, WeWork, you know, by looking at WeWork's valuation, Servcorp probably gets, you know, gets the shits all the time. I'm sorry. I, pre- I apologize for using the word. <laughs> but I, I mean, really a company like right. Servcorp or any other company that basically lets all offices out mm. would feel like why oh, does man. this thing have that valuation why it's don't I have it? so, so let's take a step back WeWork is a, a basically a, a co-working business yeah. the idea is in traditional businesses you 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 hire a, an office and it might be a whole floor or a corner of a floor you've got your own reception you walk through a security door you've got desks back there uh, two three five ten fifteen people working there at you know Doc and Scott Incorporated um, it's our own office. We pay the bills. We organize the internet. We do all that kind of good stuff. That's the business model originally. Servcorp came along and said, hey, you don't have to have a, a permanent office. You can come and work in our offices for a couple of days a week or a week a month or hold your meetings. We've got a, we've got a, a receptionist for you. You can have a really impressive looking um, you know, business, uh, but you don't have to be there the whole time. Well, effectively, it's, you know, it's, it's timeshare, right, for want of a better term. Co-working is another step on top of that where everyone basically <laughs> – piles in together you walk into a we work floor there's just desks everywhere there's a you know the old foosball machine in the corner there's free beer on tap there's cold pressed coffee everyone's wearing funky and cool and hip stuff uh, and they're all working roughly in the same space there are small offices you can also rent so just to, just to give it some context that's that's not it's not super new although the idea of co-working which wasn't just serviced offices but actually working literally you know you and i might be working opposite some people who are architects and down the road from a creative um, designer or something else. They're all in the same office space, right? So it's cheaper for us. You can't get out of the house if you're a sole trader or you've got a couple of people working with you. That's the idea of WeWork. WeWork, I think, try to call itself, I can't remember what the phrase was, it was a lifestyle or it was, it was something more than just an office. Like, it was a uh, philosophy yeah. or something. Like it's like, it's basically taking the Silicon Valley startup idea and right. taking it into the world. I mean, it's a great idea, right? But I mean, you know, ultimately you've got to look at how much cash flows and how much right, profits right, does right. that thing make. You know, so it's not the fact that we work as a concept didn't work, it's the valuations you're The valuation about. I'm alluding to, like, I mean, right. you know, this thing was losing billions and billions <laughs> and billions of dollars, like literally it every- It couldn't lose enough, right? I just kept opening and expanding and expanding and expanding. <laughs> yeah. and every time it opened a right. new floor that was loss making you just multiplied the, the losses right so the, the basically the stock market when they try to list it basically said no thank you <laughs> right we don't want this stuff because right. we don't even know how to value this thing right um, and, and there are many other examples so mm. like I mean another great example would be Uber right this yep. in just in the again don't uh, you know in the numbers I don't mm. remember just because I briefly just looked at the headline mm. uh, but you know I think it lost like billions of dollars again in the most recently reported quarter yep um you know, like, I mean, if you compare this with when Facebook listed, you know, Facebook had a path. Mm. It was clear. Actually, Facebook, I think, listed with, with make, while making a profit mm. with a clear path that you could see, uh, you know, how, how 
mm. how in in spite of whatever i would say about facebook uh, as a business i think the 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 business sustenance was never in question really right, right. right there were doubts around mobiles and things like that but yeah. i mean in all these recent ipos but here's the thing i think the stock price of uber is like half of where it was when it listed on you know at least 30% down the the, yep. the public market has marked it down significantly so it's trading about 27 bucks us at the moment it hit a high of 40 Five forty six, forty seven, 47 uh, back in June of this year. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, let's call it half among friends in the space of what, four months? Four months. So I think, you know, I think there's there was exuberance in the mm. in the private markets for sure. A lot of these things are going to, you know, fundamentally change the world. And, you know, Uber has changed the world in, mm. in many ways. Mm. But, it, you know, people, People giving a lot of extra weight to the network effect. Like, I mean, here's the thing: if I if I go to an any Uber taxi, and I always mm. ask them, you know, how many other apps do you have? And a lot of them would have Ola. A lot of them would have, you know, this new Chinese thing, like you know, mm. uh, DD. Um, In the US, they've got Lyft as well. Taxify, right, and right. you know, there's Lyft. Right, everybody. You know, if you are on the road with your car, mm. great. Why mm. wouldn't you actually mm. do all mm. of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it makes sense. Uh, so, so, anyways, I, I think. I think that. And then I think I'll just add one more caveat to Dalio's mm. point. There is exuberance, but there, there's also misunderstanding of business models, right? So, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of people do not understand is, uh, you know, some tech businesses are on purpose losing money in the mm. sense that they could be actually, they could basically be immensely profitable today. Mm. Uh, and they could be a cash cow, mm. in a sense. But if you've if you've got the ability to if you've got the ability to retain hundred percent of your clients, mm. if you've got the ability to sell more to the same client base mm-hmm. next year, and if you have ability to basically win and lock in clients and then have them locked in for a long time, then the right thing to do is to actually grow your business as fast as you can. So that's mm-hmm. basically a land grab, and a lot of enterprise software companies are basically doing that. So enterprise software is companies that are basically selling software to other companies. Right. right? right, right. Typically, these things would have really long shelf life. They're going to be you know in, inbuilt and um, embedded in the processes and systems of these companies. They're mm. unlikely to be changed for a relatively long time. And so and, the cost of doing that is worth incurring now. It's front-loaded. If you lose money because yeah. you're going to make a lot of money for a long time to come. Yeah, so it's front-loaded. Right. And and a lot of these companies actually that look like are not making profits have got lots of free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think Dalio is right to some extent. But I think at the same time, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I would say is mm. – uh, I think you can't look at it with exact same, you know, the you know PE metrics and things like that, and yeah. So I, I think with, with changing times, where you have these capital light businesses, I think you really need to think about how these business models work. Mm. And I have a feeling some uh, veteran investors are not doing that mm. because it doesn't work with their business or their investment model or you know as you said everybody has a framework mm. and i think with time you need to change your framework a little bit right and if you haven't changed your framework i think that's that's a bit of a problem mm. D- dalio so the, the the thing you wrote was titled the world has gone mad and the system is broken here's a couple of quotes for you doc at the same time as money is essentially free for those who have money and credit worthiness it is essentially unavailable to those who don't have money and credit worthiness which contributes to the rising wealth opportunity and political gaps he wrote another quote for you in some cases, and this is what you're talking about, venture capital investors are pushing money onto startups that don't want more money because they already have more than enough. But the investors are threatening to harm these companies by providing enormous support to their startup competitors if they don't take the money. 
He also says the whole dynamic in which sound finance is being thrown out the window will continue and probably accelerate, especially in the reserve currency countries and their currencies. So it's kind of not so much about the, I mean, it's partly about the companies, obviously themselves and the, and the, the, the stupid amounts of money being thrown at the VCs, but this is kind of almost partly to your point, I think, earlier of, you know, low rates, any any economic decision has consequences, right? And and some of those consequences are positive and some are negative. We drop rates because we want to keep economic growth strong and positive, but that leads to a flood of, of effectively free money or very, very, very cheap money. I, I've been around a few years, mate. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Alan Greenspan years of everything was great until it wasn't. Greenspan was a hero. He was lauded by everybody. And, you know, given another five years, history looks back as a, at Greenspan's time as a time of, you know, excess of irrational exuberance, as he himself coined that term. Is Dahlia ringing that same bell? Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the rich-poor divide is increasing. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But that's that's, a, that's got less to do with, I think, economics and more to do with, I guess, policies in, mm. in many ways, right? right. I mean... Um, it's a question of, you know, if you don't start, if you don't have a start, you can never actually win, right? I mean, so how do you find a start? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's part of the problem. Right, right, yes. Yep. Um, and I mean, to the rate question, though, here's the thing. The rates were went, you know, excessively low after the global financial crisis. Mm. Um, the U.S. rates did start climbing back up, right? Mm. Now, the question really is after a big crisis like that, where does the rates land up in mm. at, at right? I mean, you know, it's, I think, um, yeah, we are at 0.75. The US is at what 1.75 or so, two two percent or something like that, yep. right? So, uh, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, um, some people have taken advantage of that. Um, some companies have taken advantage of uh, extra low um, interest rate loans. Mm. Um, has. And it's a question of whether or not productive things are being built mm. uh, or being created with that funds. Yeah, particularly. Well, and again, to your point, if if I mean overvaluation by definition is about the worst waste of money you can you can think about, yeah. right? If you if you're putting forty billion dollars into something, say we work, it's only worth ten. The, the last thirty billion dollars was added to that business. At least you know if the valuation increases and then more cash is added, that's different. But if you're raising capital over higher valuations that are unjustifiable, you're literally torching billions of dollars in the process I guess writ large that has its own problems yeah like I mean overall though I, I think I, I think what I feel really good about is that we are still probably in the early phases of you know technology doing wonderful things right mm. and that has its own side effects of whether or not there's you know it's going to have an impact on employability employability ability of people but yeah, yeah. I mean you know we are still in the early stages of the internet we are still in the early stages of electronic commerce we are still in the early stages of digitization of money we are still in the early stages of you know uh, robotics mm. um, you know so lots of wonderful things are possible from the investments that are being made in these different areas mm-hmm. right uh, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning or you know um, I, I mean take Take it, robotics is robotics is an interesting example, right? If you take robotics, you could you know you could fundamentally provide treatment to people at areas where there's no doctor. As yeah, long right. if you could actually make robots work to the degree you know mm. you know if it make it like, make it work like science fiction, right? That mm. has huge implications in itself. Right. Um, yeah. So so I, I'm not really certain that you know money is being wasted in that sense. I mean, mm. it has provided opportunities to uh, people who uh, have entrepreneurial skills and want to solve complex problems, the opportunity to actually solve them while, while 
buying, basically getting money for cheap, right? Mm. So, I mean, it, to some extent, it's a question of whether or not right. people are willing to dream big mm-hmm. and try big or bet big. There's some social good in huge overvaluation because it means that people with big ideas get a lot of money from time to time and, and that... In a, in a way, they probably wouldn't have in, in tighter economic times. I'm not even saying it's overvaluation, right? I'm okay. saying that the availability of money, mm. whether it's resulting, you know, the way, what I'm saying is that basically if you have printed money and that money is actually flowing to useful causes, mm. in some sense, that is actually helping the society overall. Right, okay. Uh, the global society move forward, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, then, you know, you can think about some corporations are benefiting more than others because they actually took those risks and made those, you know, bold bets. But, mm. um, yeah, like, you know, I'll give you like a far-fetched example, right? An example might be that uh, today, if you want to send, you know, um, you know, payloads up into the sky, NASA is not doing it. SpaceX mm. is doing it, mm. right? So that's private funding, basically driving uh, the next generation of, uh, you know, space exploration. The same right. thing is true for Blue Origin, which is owned by, you know, Jeff Bezos, mm. right? So the f- cheap money is driving. Mm. R- Innovation, which the government is not doing in different places, but you know the private companies are, mm. um, which is great. If Dalio is right, there's a the logical conclusion, or at least one version of the conclusion, is that greater inequality means that we end up with a lower propensity to spend as an economy. Those who would spend more of their income if they got more of the income don't because they simply haven't got it. Those who've already got more than enough don't because they don't need to, and so. To some degree, this is both the precursor and the and the um, net result of Dalio's point, which is if if if, there's, if you've got plenty of cash, you're making so much money for your investments, you can't spend it all. You go and try and find somewhere to invest it. That means that you're all competing to throw money at VCs or someone else. On the other hand, if you're a lower paid worker who hasn't got a pay rise in the US for 20 years here for the best part of a decade, as an economy very, very hard to get consumption growth if you don't got more money to literally put into the economy. I mean, that's, consumption growth and wages growth kind of go hand in hand, don't they, at least at some level. Is Dalio right at least in that sense that growing inequality potentially is a net drag on economic activity? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the finer points here and I, I can't comment on the finer points. I mean, yeah, it's a net drag. I think mm. in a society, if you have growing inequality that's not necessarily a good thing right i mean that's clearly not going to be helping people yeah. because you, it creates not just i think consumption is only one aspect of it right it creates yeah. other problems it creates you know the greater inequality causes crimes the greater inequality causes you know civil strife you know you, you can push it to all sorts of extremes right yeah. so uh, i mean yeah but that to me is like why why is there greater inequality what, the the greater inequality is there because is it because the people don't have opportunities is it because people are not taking opportunities is it because um people are not being provided the resources i think the, the key is to is to solve those right questions right, right? right it's right. not really it's not really a you know VC problem at that point. I mean, oh, VC no, no, is no. going to. I mean, Dalia's point was more the broader system is broken, not just VCs were broken. The VCs were one. It probably got all the headlines. It was the example of you know the the the, the impact of cheap, free, effectively money being thrown around because of the inequality. It was again at some some degree both the cause and the effect. I think of Dalia's point. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, here, yeah. So I think. 
I don't have a good answer to that. I don't know what the solutions are. If I knew, I should have been in the government. To, to be, uh, <laughs> I mean, not a politics or an economics podcast necessarily, yeah. mate. It was more that sense of, I guess. Well, I'm, I'll put it more in an absolute term rather than a question. I'm, I'm very concerned that I think there's a social issue, by the way, which I'm, I'm equally concerned about. But purely economically, as an investor, if I'm, if I'm trying to find growth coming on the back of economic growth. It's very hard to get profit growth without economic growth, very hard to get economic growth without more consumption over time. And that seems to be harder to come by because we simply haven't got people with the propensity to say to spend, I should say, which are normally lower and middle income earners. Um, if you're if you're if you're Alan Joyce and you get a twenty four million dollar bonus, you might spend some of that in a house, you might spend some of that in a car, but the vast bulk of it you can't do anything else with except to invest it, right? If you give a couple of bucks to one of his, you know, um, uh, mechanics or, or check-in staff, they're more likely to spend it than he is. And so to some degree, that growing inequality simply reduces our propensity to spend. And I think at least on, on one version of the future may well harm our ability to grow the economy in the medium term. Um, but but don't um, productivity improvements, you know, for example, at an em- enterprise level, mm. um, benefit everyone, right? Right. If a company becomes a mm. company or an enterprise mm. or a country becomes more efficient, mm. it becomes more efficient, therefore there's less waste. Mm. Um, it's able to better allocate its resources to you know, growing. So, I mean, you could get growth mm. via just being more efficient. Like, I mean, you know, like, I mean, you know, I get, I get the point about, you know, that, yeah, that we want the oh, coffee sure. money to, yeah. to grow. But I mean, yeah. to me, that looks like that really hardly grows. I mean, that only helps like at the fringes and the retail mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the retail. Success. I think that solves the retail pain problem, mm-hmm. but that doesn't solve any, like the 2%, 1% growth that we want doesn't really solve the issue of um, inequality, right? Mm-hmm. The inequality actually keeps broadening. Yeah, yeah, right? totally. I know it won't solve it. I think, I, think they're both, I think they're both right. I think they're both parallel realities that the productivity and technological improvement and the propensity to spend, I think, together are probably the two bigger levers in terms of economic prosperity in the, in the future in the short term anyway. Probably we should just move on. Let's do that. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, let's talk about tech. It's You're a tech guy. It's been a tough month, I want to say, maybe, is it three weeks, something like that, for most of Australia's tech darlings. You can run through, I won't necessarily try and do the roll call, but all the waxes plus a couple of other, you know, kind of hangers on and, and kind of standbys. It, it was a great first nine-ish months, 10 months of the year. The last couple of weeks, though, mate, it, it seems to have been either <laughs> a, a recognition of things were getting a bit too heated or maybe some short-term pessimism that maybe isn't justified or something in between. Um, WiseTech, Appen, uh, what have I seen? Um, uh, Prometicus, uh, throw me some names. They're, they're pretty much afterpay. Um, I assume it's probably down if afterpay is down. It's been a tough time for Australia's tech companies. Is, is, is there some change in the market dynamic? Is this a, to use the old, the old cliche, the rotation between growth and value? Is it a recognition of what was already overvalued kind of coming back to the pack or some sense of maybe just pessimism or negativism because of what's happening overseas or here at home? Yeah, so I think um, valuations had, had sort of become unstuck to some extent. Right. Um, and I mean... Something like, for example, Promedicus, you know, at one point was what 30, 40, 40 times sales. 
That's a lot, right? That's a lot. <laughs> um, you, you know, like a, a traditional SaaS company, mm. a, a good traditional SaaS company would, uh, so software as a service type of company, mm-hmm. uh, selling software to enterprises, would, you know, maybe would sell for 12 maybe times earnings. <laughs> right, you know, if it's yeah. growing fast, maybe. Uh, so I'm sales, sorry. So I'm sales. So time sales, maybe 14, 15, if it's like really going fast, right? right? right. Um, so the valuations had had really gotten out of whack mm. in some sense. Um, the, I mean, there's, you know, I'm again, I'm just you know, speculating on all the potential reasons. Then, and combine that with the fact that the American stock market, there, there's been a rotation sort of going on from, um, you know, high growth uh, enterprise software type of companies that have not been, that don't have a reported, you know, profit right. uh, at the net profit line, uh, you know, might have cash flows, free cash mm-hmm. flows. Um, you know, th- their valuations have been coming down for the better part of maybe three, four months, right? Okay. So that started there a while back before. So, I mean, in a way, the Australian tech sector had not seen a correction, mm-hmm. especially at the high-flying end. And Matt, what, just to take a step back, what drove the U.S.? Um, price falls. Is there, is there a particular trend, a particular, is something going on broadly with large, what, what's kind of I mean, again, with all of these things, you know, it's all speculative reasoning, right? So, um, I mean, the answer is we don't know, by the way. We, we don't fine. know. So, I mean, you know, I, I, can, I can think of a couple of things that seem relevant. One of them is, um, so when the trade war with the US-China trade war was hot, mm. one line of thinking was that if the trade war heats up, it really impacts consumer discretionaries. It, it impacts companies with large global footprints, especially one which has China businesses. Right. So if you um, are Apple and you sell phones in China, or you're Nike and you sell mm. shoes in China, or you depend on the China supply chain, mm. well, you got you got problems, right? <laughs> Enterprise software mostly is ex-China. Right, so most of the enterprise software companies actually do not sell into China. Right, okay. Right, um, and therefore they were regarded as safe from the China ah, issues, right? Okay. And the, the going thinking was that, well, you know, if, if you know, and in a way, this is this is um, maybe counterintuitive, but there's an argument to be made that if you are if you're if you are say Nike, mm-hmm. you are impacted by the trade war. Mm-hmm. You are at the same time in the process of doing some enterprise software upgrades. <laughs> you probably are actually going to continue with the enterprise software upgrades because it's right. going to give you right. savings over the long term. Right. It makes sense to do that. So in a way, you could think that enterprise software, especially mission-critical software, mm. uh, which helps you increase your sales or improves your productivity in, in other regions, is actually something that's going to be less affected, less impacted, and therefore is in some ways defensive. Okay. So there was, there was that. So, of course, the growth rates on, on the enterprise software side uh, – has, is much higher than you would see elsewhere. Yeah. Um, some people think of them as, you know, start to think of them as defensives and the valuation started going up. Mm. Now with the potential of the trade war actually coming to an end, maybe, mm-hmm. this is, uh, we are in, you know, movie iteration number five or six or whatever it is, the the flood of money that floated out <laughs> of things like Nike and all the, like basically stuff that you think is blue chip, Blue chip growth. Right. Uh, people say, well, the valuations there look pretty good, you know, so maybe I should just cycle back. So there's a little bit of cycling back of money going to, um, you, you know, a lot of people actually invest with like 12 month horizons, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, actually, 12 months is giving people a lot of credit. A lot of people invest with three month horizons, maybe two day horizons. So <laughs> that's if that's right. the case, then, this afternoon, yeah. uh, this afternoon, if that's the case, then this sort of money movement and this sort of thinking helps, which, well, you know, I, I think that 
those things are more value now if I want mm. an immediate return mm. and therefore I cycle some money back. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, that could all be a reasonable explanation of what was going on and what is probably going on. So the expectation of trade um, uh, trade issues being resolved is helping companies which have a profit and which were probably trading at reasonable uh, price to earnings multiples. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, basically the, the money has been driving back from high growth, no profit companies. Right. So the question begs the question then from here, is this the decline we had to have? Is it, are things more normal now? Are they more, obviously obviously there's some risk taken out of the price by definition, no matter what you think of any company, a lower price is less risky than a higher price, uh, unless it goes to zero, in which case you lose 100% of everything, but assuming it's not, um, lower prices are always, you know, less risky than higher prices. But is, is this a case of buying opportunity or is it a case of, well, it was kind of all a bit overheated in the first place. Now it's a reasonable value. Again, I know we're talking about you know individual companies. Afterpay, for example, fell from thirty six bucks back on the fourteenth of October, and now a little less than three weeks later, is it twenty six bucks? I mean, that's a, a fall of a third in the in the best part of a couple of weeks, three weeks. Um, is this more normal as and again whether we talk about afterpay or just in general? Um, is this attractive? Is this a buying opportunity? Is it just simply a little bit of heat out of the stock, and that's probably good for long term investors? What's going on? Yeah, so I would characterize it. You know, it takes out the heat out of the stocks. That's one. I think each and each of the company, each of the wax ones, for example, mm. you have to sort of look at them differently, right? Um, you know, Wise Tech had basically a short attack and still is, has a short attack ongoing, yeah. right? Yep. That impacts its prices. Afterpay is basically a super volatile stock. I mean, it, right. you know, it's like a six, seven, eight billion dollar, whatever it is right now. But I mean. It does those moves, right? Mm. And you know, there's regulatory issues. There's issues with how fast U.S. is expanding. There's this issue about how much you know can you give more debt to people uh, mm. effectively. There are a lot of <laughs> lot of lot of questions there, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, so it's not surprising that those things move. You know, pro medicus. You know, do, do you really expect it to be on a fifty times sales multiple? Mm. You know, what's more reasonable, um, and, th- and things like that. So, so I think it's taken out of the heat. I think you have to really make a judgment based on individual companies and mm-hmm. their uh, their prospects. I think there are some that look attractive mm-hmm. at, at these prices, and there are some that still don't look that attractive at these prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, I, I mean, there's also this aspect of a lot of, you know, our tech sector is small, so there's, there's this aspect if you're a tech investor, you want to invest in tech or you want to invest in growth, mm-hmm. then you have this hot money chasing a small <laughs> subset of right, companies, right. right? So that has its own Effect. Right. Um, well, it's hot money anyway at any time or from time to time. But but as you say, when there's when there's a huge amount of supply, i.e. Um, or demand, I should say, huge amount of demand, i.e. money looking for a home, and a small supply because only a couple of companies to invest in, Economics 101 says that a lot of money chasing a few companies should see prices go up and potentially to unrealistic levels at least from time to time. Yeah, exactly. So I think you need to make a call. Um, you know, as, as we were discussing, I think at, at current, after current sort of, uh, you know, volatility and price movements. Mm. I, I can find a few that mm. I think are interesting um, investment cases, um, which actually look quite value at, at today's prices. I, I can also equally find companies that I would not actually touch because <laughs> they look very expensive. Um, so, that, yep. you know, I think they're both, yep. both cases. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot, mate. I'm going to talk a bit. I'm going to ask you for your best tech stock idea at the moment but while I, while you think about that uh, I think I think you're right I think the the 
it's, a, it's an interesting challenge, right? The, the tech stock, growth stocks in general, are always sell for high perceived prices because they are locking in or, or trying to factor in many, many years of high growth. And that's where you know companies like those sort of tech companies differ from bog standard retail stocks or bank stocks or anything else because in those cases, the future is relatively knowable. The growth is relatively slow. You can pretty much put them into a formula or work out how much you should pay for Bullies or West Farmers or... Um, you know, Commonwealth Bank potentially, although it might be an issue depending on what it comes out with results recently or soon. Uh, but from a from a tech perspective, you're kind of looking at this going, well, the, the sheer number of years worth of growth, the sheer compound value of that growth, it's all a bit of a finger in the air and you've got to make some sort of rough judgments as to how much is that worth. And frankly, after pay at 36 or 26, I won't say it's the same price because it's a big difference for people who have lost a third of their shareholding in the last in the last two weeks or three weeks. But to some degree, it's like if this is a $100 stock at some point, then yes, your returns from either of those two prices are different, but it's it's the volatility on the way there. If it's a if it's a $15 stock eventually, then it is to some degree a journey back to something more reasonable. And so, and I'm not, I don't have a view on, on which is which, by the way, but you know, to some degree, that that's the challenge with growth investing, right? It's very, very hard to extrapolate meaningfully with with a relatively small range of outcomes. These companies have big, big ranges of outcomes. Some will live, some will die, some will do spectacularly well, some will under underwhelm with with their lack of you know delivery on what was possible. Um, is that kind of from a pricing perspective, you know, how you think about some of this volatility? Well, the number one thing I tell people is that, you know, like, uh, so I don't know how, how much WiseTech is trading for today. Uh, maybe it's 27, 28 bucks, somewhere around that. I will check it for you because we're all about uh, live data here at Motley Fool Money. It is trading at $26.82, mate, up 2.8% okay. on Thursday morning. So that's, that's called a 27, right? Done. Um, we rounded, rounding it up uh, using the full mathematical rounding up <laughs> to 27. Uh, it was a $17 stock at the beginning of the year. Right. Right. So... Yes, it's painful. <laughs> 17 yeah. to 32 or 34 is, of course, a double. Right. But if anybody told me yeah. that, you know, give me a stock that's going to double in one year, I'd say, oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The answer yeah. to that is always, I don't know. Right, right. You, actually, if I get a double in three, <laughs> four years, I consider that lucky. Yeah. It's, it's great to get a double in three, four years, right? I mean, yeah. that's fantastic returns. Yeah. So, so the problem is- your point. Wisetech, if, you, if, you'd, if you'd bought it on January 1, if you'd literally done nothing other than- you know, go to sleep, go fishing, yeah. go on holidays, come back now, you say, wow, it's like 50%, that's amazing. Yeah. It's all about context, right? And it's all about context. Yeah. So I think when you know when you see 50% returns, it's awesome. But when you compare that with the fact that it was 100% at one mm-hmm. point, it looks all of a sudden terrible, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. Um, but I think I think some context is really important. The, the important thing is to, you can't expect mm. 50% mm or 100% returns in a year or mm. in 10 months that you shouldn't expect that. Right, and right, if you right. get it, great. But you should be also assuming that the moment you get 100% returns in like 10 months, yep. there's going to be some pullback. Now, yep. the problem is you know, people, you know, as money managers say, hey, you should be selling then, right? And maybe you should, but here's the problem. I don't know whether it's going to go from 100% mm-hmm. returns to mm-hmm. 150% returns and then retract back to right. 75, right. right? I could be making these valuation-based calls, but these are really hard calls to make. Yeah. You've got a 20% gain, you should sell. You've got a 40% gain, you should sell. You've got a yeah. 60% gain, you should sell. Exactly. You know, it's, it, it, you know the, the old saying, you can't go broke taking a profit is true, but you can't make a fortune taking a profit either. Yeah, so I think if you take a really long-winded view and you say that, well, you know, I'm just going to look at what's going to happen in five, ten years, mm-hmm. and you know, you have a view on that. And if you think the company is going to multi-bag from the current price over 
that long five or ten year horizon, then right. I think it's worthwhile holding on to them. Like I mean, you know, to use WiseTech as an example, we hold it in 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 the pro portfolio. I mean, we trimmed a number mm. of times mm. um, on 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 exactly that reason. It's becoming too large, mm. right? And, and you know, if you'd be asked why are you doing that, it's going <laughs> up, right? I mean, it's true, right? But if you're managing a fixed amount of money and you want to really, you know, manage the risks and the, you know, the risks and the upside and the downside that come to having large positions, mm. you got to do that, right? Um, I would, I would treat it differently, I guess, if I had constant flow of money coming in. So, I mean, I mean, those are the, those are the things I think that's um, w- w- worth remembering. Same thing with good Afterpay point, too, right? I mean, it, it yeah. has gone from like ten bucks or something like that yeah, right. to thirty bucks. That's like a three x. Yeah. yeah. Um, t- so, yep. and I think, yeah, as you say, mate, the, the, yeah, it, hindsight's always, you can always easily find buy and sell points in hindsight. At the time, you can't simply know how much further it's going to go before it comes back or how much further it comes back before it goes higher. Uh, it's impossible to pick the, the highs and lows. The best you can do is look out five years and say, do I actually be worth more or less than that at, at that point? In the meantime, it's all just volatility. It's all just noise. Yep. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, airlines have been in the news this week and... It's interesting because we've talked about airlines before. We've been asked about airlines before, and I was uh, specifically challenged by a listener. Thank you for the challenge around the fact that Buffett loves airlines. What the hell? Of, um, <laughs> why? Why am I so bad? Um, and it's a fair question. I, I will take some karmic uh, benefit from the, the recent news this week. Both Qantas and Virgin announcing cost cutting. Qantas is going to cut a head office staff. Virgin are going to cut a lot of jobs. Um, they're cutting routes as well to try and keep the business basically, you know, efficient and profitable. This doesn't seem to me, mate, like a business that has a lot of remaining growth. It feels, I mean, yes, they'll, they'll cut costs and try and help that deliver growth and any decent business should always be looking at its costs. But I've got to say, it, you know, I mean, in their, in, their, in their defense or to their credit, they are neither of them are being stupidly competitive and pushing prices and yields down. And so, you know, there's the mutually assured destruction of, of competition hasn't come to pass. So on one, case, on one hand, they're being very responsible and, you know, not causing grief for themselves or each other. On the flip side, this, these aren't the moves of businesses that have long growth runways ahead of them, if you excuse the pun. Well, um, you know, I know Buffett likes... So I get um, some credit for the pun? No, you growth get, runways, get runways, airlines... Get. Yeah, I'll give you some <laughs> credit. You're, you're a generous man. I'm, I'm just being generous. You're a generous man. But, but, but I mean, you know, I'll give you even more credit, right? Okay. I mean... You know, Buffett is pro airlines and you're anti airlines. Maybe Correct. you're winning. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think since he bought the airlines, I'm probably sure he's ahead. So, very, very rare you beat Buffett, but uh, um, yes. Yeah, maybe you're beating Buffett. So, you know, <laughs> you, you're the Australian Buffett right now. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Air, airlines as a business, I mean, it's a really hard business. I mean, you have all this, you know, you have mm. to go to pay for planes. Uh, the aeroplanes, they're costly things. Yep. Then you have to pay for fuel. Yep. <laughs> That's pretty expensive. <laughs> then you have to go to pay for staff and right. you just can't hire anyone. They better right. be trained, right? And you need the same number of pilots whether the plane's half full, quarter full, or completely yeah. full, right? You need the same number of pilots and you also need to make sure that those pilots are getting enough rest. So yes, you probably true. need, if there's only two pilots, you probably need three if you're flying them long distance. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's a fixed, it's a large fixed cost business mm-hmm. with, you know, low... Uh, growth potential. I mean, there's some growth in the sense that, you know, as tourism grows, there's more people coming in. Mm. So, you know, the airlines can benefit from that. Um, but 
I mean, yeah, this is a really hard business that re- I would say that these airlines make a lot of money when uh, the fuel prices are cheap and they right. make less money when the fuel prices are That one single factor yep. can be a big... Oh, it's the it's it's largest a, swing factor in their entire largest business. Swing factor. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think I would say that in a way they're like, you know, they Virgin and uh, Qantas, right? Mm. They're both behaving... Um, I would not say they're like a cartel, but, <laughs> but you know, they're like a bit like the big banks, right? You know, like, yeah. I mean, I will cut a little bit into you, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't take the uh, the saw and try to chop your head because if I do that, uh, you're going to chop my head and that's going to be no right, good for correct, anyone, correct. right? Uh, so they're being rational. They're going about, you know, they're probably, you know, being rational about prices. They are taking down prices if they can, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. not at the cost of, you know, I'm going to not try to bleed you out of business because right. if I do that, it's going to just bleed me as well. So I, I, I think it's, you know, very rational. Um, you know, and in the past, they've tried growing internationally. I mean, I guess Qantas has some success of growing with the Jetstar Asia brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it looks like, you know, uh, Virgin is cutting some of the routes that it has for um, international, which, which is, again, um, makes sense, right? Focus on your strengths mm. and things that are not working. You basically, you know, in that route like Melbourne, Hong Kong, which they're cutting, keeping only Sydney, Hong Kong, which it sort of makes sense. I mean, yeah, I, I think very rational steps. And uh, yeah, maybe Buffett didn't get this one right. <laughs> are you buying any of the airline stocks? If you had to, which one would you choose? You, you know, okay. If I had to, I am biased <laughs> towards Qantas. I love the brand. I just, I just think that the brand mm. has such an appeal, and I really like the way the airline serves its customers. Mm. So, in a commodity world, if you can find some way of charging a premium, i.e., probably brand in this case, yeah, there's some real value in that. Yeah, and and Qantas charges a premium. It does <laughs> a lot. So yeah, I, I like Qantas a lot, and you know, we we are Qantas frequent flyers, so. I would if I had to buy one, I would buy. I will. I'll make. Actually, I did buy Qantas shares way back. Wow! In uh, fashion time, you know, like 2010 maybe. Okay. And uh, I still remember. I think I bought them for like a dollar or something. Mm-hmm. I probably sold them for a dollar twenty. I took a twenty hey, percent profit. Hold on. <laughs> if, if, only if I'd held. I think they bought like a five dollar oh, stock yeah, or something like that. Six dollars sixty. If it, Sorry, I right. would have never thought. <laughs> No, in, right, exactly. In my mind, yep. that Qantas could be like a five or six bag or a four bag or whatever it is it's, in, in that time. Of course, right. if you take a longer term view, the probably the stock has gone nowhere. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> and well, the thing is, I mean, that's, this is the interesting thing. This is, this is Buffett's kind of theory, right? To, back to him, which is the, the whole year of buying airline stocks is they've all been much less cutthroat competition-wise. And so in the US and here at home, as you say, the shares have gone almost nowhere. 2007 or 2008, they were $5.90. So that's not much. Go back to 2099, they're $5. So it's been, if you bought it at the right time, you've done okay, but it's tough to make a quid. But if if this lack of cutthroat competition, if this kind of cooperation of sorts, and we don't want to allege anything, we're not suggesting that at all. But, you know, if if that lack of cutthroat competition continues... I mean, yeah, this can be a very different industry than it has been in the past. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I don't think that's anything wrong. I mean, capitalism does not mean that you're going to have cutthroat competition, that you're going to destroy each other, right? Capitalism basically means that if there is a profit, extra profit to be made, you're going to go make it. But if you can't make that extra profit, there's no point in getting actually just you know, building, you know, pyramids of losses, right? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, of course, is that Compass Airlines that's had, I think, three 
three iterations over over the, over the years. At some point, if Qantas version do get too profitable, we may yet again see a third competitor enter the market, and that that generally tends to be what causes them to uh, have to compete on price all of a sudden. That generally is bad news for both businesses. Yeah, let's get to the mailbag, dude. Let's do that. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Alrighty, mate. A couple of questions. So, good or big news? Next week, we're not going to be here, which is maybe good news for our listeners, not good news for us. But we are going to leave our listeners with a special mailbag episode. I'm going to be in the US next week. And so, we're going to pre record a mailbag edition. If you want your question included in that mailbag edition, too late, sorry, because we're going to record it today. But if you want your email or your question included in a future mailbag, please let us know. Hit us up on all the socials. It's going to be lots of fun. We got lots and lots of questions, so I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, mate. Um, but if you have a question, hit us up, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Give us an email, info at fool.com.au. Look up The Motley Fool. Look up Scott Phillips on all of those. Look up an ear barn on Twitter. You'll find us all somewhere there. Mate, let's get into it. Question from Carl. He's taking me to task, which, you know, you, you'll appreciate. He says, Hi, Scott and Nearbarn. I'm a long-time Motley Fool subscriber, multiple Motley Fool subscriber, and listen every week. Love your work, especially Nearbarn's. Somebody a, actually likes my work. Well, he gives it a wink, so I'm, I think he's probably just taking the what's he out of me just quietly. Well, but anyway. I love Carl right now. <laughs> Carl is my, like, Carl you, loves know, you, mate, you are the best... Carl, you're very lucky I'm, I'm raising your question, mate. It was a very close run thing. He says, Scott, a question on the logic of your opinion that boycotting or selling shares doesn't work. Because it means if I because ju- if I sell, it just means someone else is buying. It doesn't change anything. So my view generally is I think if you're going to be an ethical person and you want to use your money and voice for change, I don't think personally um, ethical investing works I don't think there's any evidence that it does and I don't think it's a very useful way to go about making change because a consumer you've got much 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 more power than as being an investor anyway so I made that point basically saying look if we, if we boycott or sell it doesn't make any difference Carl says surely the point is to encourage many shareholders to be selling or trying to sell and none to be buying then there would be significant downward pressure on share prices and pressure on the company to change Keep up the fantastic and important work, Carl. Carl, thanks for the, the compliment at the end. Doc, do you have a, a view on Carl's challenge before I weigh in? I mean, well, maybe one slight thing that, I mean, it, typically a market, this is a secondary market, right? So it's mm-hmm. not it's not primary capital. Um, By which we mean we're just buying and selling existing shares, not raising more money. Yeah, but I mean, the, this, the side point I was going to make was, uh, and this is more common in Australia than in, in say, the Americas, a lot of companies actually come back to investors mm. regularly asking for money, right? <laughs> they so, really do, including right. ANZ and that this week. Including ANZ. Yeah. So ANZ basically comes uh, or, uh, you know, says, I need to pay some dividends. You know what? I don't have the <laughs> yeah. money. So you know what? I'm going to just raise some money. I'll raise one billion oh, and then man. give you some of that. Um, so, I mean, in a way, because we have active participation via, you know, uh, whether it's a rights issue or via a share placement plan or even via placements, um, we could potentially have an impact yep. uh, by, you know, ignoring companies that do bad things. So, so I mean, there's, a, you know, I'm just because you said nice things, nice things about me. You know, I'm just trying. To, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just agreeing a little bit more with you, Carl. Nice, uh, Doc. Uh, Doc's right now. I have made that. I have made that exception in my writing and my my commentary on this. Um, second uh, secondary offerings. Um, equity raisings are definitely somewhere you can have an impact. Absolutely. For what it's worth, Carl, I think you're. 
So the the easiest examples, mate, are the, are the multi-decade um, sin stocks that have done exceptionally well, despite always being at low multiples, right? So uh, Altria, Philip Morris is what it used to be called. And for those who don't know Philip Morris, they were the, or they still are the cigarette company, um, make a truckload of cigarettes and a truckload of money. Those shares have actually been undervalued in air quotes for the best part of half a century. The problem is it hasn't stopped them making a single cigarette. And in fact, it actually made a lot of money for shareholders who bought and held those shares because the low valuation means if you reinvest the dividends, you're actually buying back in at really, really low prices. So to some degree, as you say, Carl, did it push prices down? Yes. Did it force companies to change? No. Uh, and in fact, it only made more money for those who did hold. In a small market, if we had the three of us, Doc, you and me, Carl, um, and we're in a room and not, we all agreed, none of us agreed to, to, to ever buy those shares, I guess at some level that would you know create a permanent change we could probably go and lobby the the companies there's just so much capital around both private and public i, I just I, I mean is it possible i guess if you squint and look for a distance and in one parallel universe it maybe it happens for the most part there's plenty of people prepared to go and buy cheap sin stocks take them off your hands take them off my hands at a discount all you're really doing is transferring the profit from you to them uh, which actually makes it even worse so uh, look is it possible i guess history and i think to some degree, kind of extrapolating out the, 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 the thought process, I just don't think it's going to really meaningfully impact the companies themselves nor their operations. And again, in that, in that context, you're only passing the profits from, from you to somebody else. You make someone else risk off the sin stock you don't want to own. It doesn't mean they make any less guns or cigarettes or mining, you know, doing any less mining. So I, I think I get your point. Um, I just don't know that it necessarily works that way. Next question, mate. Or next, uh, next one. Here's one for both of us, mate. So, so Carl gave you a compliment, and uh, Carl will never have another question answered again in this podcast. But, but Jordan hit us up with a question on Instagram. You know, I love my instas. He uh, he says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. When will you guys be setting up your own ETF that tracks your portfolio? Maybe a lucrative idea for your listeners to invest in. A Scott and Doc ETF must happen. Full on, Jordan." Now, we probably should call it Doc and Scott ETF, to be fair. We'll do it alphabetically because that's the only appropriate way to do it. But a Doc well, and Scott I'm, ETF. I, I'm fine with Scott and Doc ETF. I <laughs> what mean, do you reckon? What are the, what are the odds that we, we, we launch our own range of ETFs and uh, let our listeners invest in some of the goodness that we bring every week? Um, I don't know. Maybe we should do it. <laughs> it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, well, are, you, are you signing up, mate? Are we, are we going to do it? I, I don't know. I think, well... I mean, uh, a lot of the ideas that we, we like, they're already there in our services. So you can, I mean, uh, you, you could buy them uh, from our services. But I mean, there's, there's, some, um, uh, there's some benefit to the ETF idea in the sense that it makes actually the buying process entirely. You know, maybe we should have a, a full ETF in that sense. There you go. Maybe you've started something, Jordan. Stay tuned. We'll have to convince the boss that's not a problem, Doc. We always have to convince the boss. <laughs> Good question there, Jordan. Thank you very much. Thoughts, that wraps us up. This has been a longish podcast, a bit of news to get through, some hopefully interesting and thought-provoking topics to talk about. But as I said, super excited for our next podcast and all mailbag all the time podcast. Well, I'm away in the US on work for the record. I'm not over there holiday. I've got a little bit of work to do. So I'll be joining our US colleagues at our company meeting called Foolapalooza, uh, where we all get together, most of us get together and uh, and try and just you know, learn a little bit, share a little bit, have a bit of fun. Um, and so I'll be doing that next week and I won't be with you. Of course, while I'm away, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars is always kind. Go on iTunes or your app. Tell your friends, let other people know. Sign writing, sky writing, um, ads in the paper. 
Uh, berate your friends. Download, download the podcast for them. Jump on their phones. Look up the Motley Fool Money podcast. Just subscribe for them. Look after them. They, they need some help. You need to help them. Do that. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to where, Doc? www.fool.com.au. No, dot, dot, fool.com.au. Correct. Forward slash. Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Mailbag Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.